0: Listeners, it's day. We're off this week, but as always, we're going to re-air one of our favorites. And don't worry, we'll be back next week, bigger and better than ever. This week, we revisit episode number 70. First, when Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark on their famous western expedition, it wasn't just to find more opportunities for commerce. Instead, Jefferson had a bizarrely personal request for the adventurers. Then, unlike much of the world, public restrooms are free to use in America. But why? And are we better off because of it? And finally, there have been 275 million copies of Monopoly sold worldwide since its creation in 1935. So many people have had to make tough choices on what game piece they'll use. This week, a brief history of the pieces and a comeback story for one piece that just wouldn't die. Thanks as always for your continued support. Have a great week and enjoy Commute episode number seven.
1: You're listening to Commute the Podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there.
0: What up? Welcome into Commute the Podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute,
1: we all know that Thomas Jefferson was famous for purchasing the Louisiana Territory and then sending Lewis and Clark on an expedition out west to map it out. But did he have ulterior motives for sending these explorers into the wilderness?
0: We've all been there, right? I mean, you're out in public, nature calls, you find the nearest public restroom, easy peasy. In America, we would never dream of paying to use a public restroom, would we? But it hasn't always been this way. So why is it free to pee in America?
1: For nearly 100 years, the board game monopoly has stood the test of time. We'll analyze the winding journey of the pieces on the board.
0: All of that on this edition of Commute.
1: So, Dave, we're all familiar with the famous monument, Mount Rushmore, and Mount Rushmore has four faces carved into the side oh, of a mountain. No. Can you tell me those four faces? Go. Don't do this to me.
0: Okay. Uh, Lincoln. Okay. One. Uh, Thomas Jefferson.
1: Okay. Two. Got to
0: be Washington.
1: Okay. That's three. You got hey, one more. three. Okay. Uh, Grover Cleveland? Well, you know, three (laughs) out of four is not bad. It is uh, Theodore Roosevelt. That's true. I meant Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah, you did. Uh, Of course you did. Dave, uh, we're going to talk about Thomas Jefferson today, and specifically, we're going to talk about how Thomas Jefferson uh, is or was obsessed with the woolly mammoth, Right. Um, so, Don't say right like we know that he was obsessed <laughs> with the woolly mammoth. Well, yeah. He was, was obsessed
0: with the woolly mammoth, right? I mean, who's not?
1: You know, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> he had a lot of interests, and this was just one of them. And, uh, but it kind of steered some of the decisions of his presidency, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, Dave, he's most famous for being the third president and writing the Declaration of Independence. But uh, like we said, he had a pretty broad set of interests, too. And during his life, he conducted numerous scientific scientific experiments and conducted research but one of his most passionate interests was the existence of woolly mammoths. You see Dave Jefferson didn't just study mammoth bones though he was convinced that mammoths were still somewhere out west in the unexplored North America waiting to be discovered. You know, at the time, bizarre fossils were being discovered all across North America from beasts long extinct, and Jefferson, among others, became very intrigued by them for a couple of reasons. One was due to emerging patriotism in the new nation. For a long time, European scientists had argued that species of beasts found in European soil were much more superior to creatures found in the new world. So, discovering living beasts like a woolly mammoth it could kind of turn the tables on those snooty Europeans and prove once and for all that the American nation was superior in every way to Europe, which is sort of petty, but I digress. And on top of that, Dave, you also have to understand where humans were and their understanding of world history. Extinction was not really accepted as a mainstream idea at the time. So finding a set of bones essentially meant that there were more of that creature somewhere out there. In an article for Vox by Phil Edwards, he says it this way, "...the late 18th century, the idea of extinction was only just beginning to be popularized by some thinkers, but Jefferson wasn't among the believers. In a pre-Darwinian age, extinction was a violation of religious ideals, as in God would not let animals go extinct, and secular ideas, as in the balance of nature could never be so significantly upset. For Jefferson in particular, extinction was just an unusual theory." In fine, the bones exist, he wrote. Therefore, the animal has existed. The movements of nature are in a never ending circle. So, Dave, now in addition to being the president and being part of an early forming of America, Jefferson is also remembered for purchasing the Louisiana Territory from France during his administration and then sending explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark on an expedition to uncover what the new lands contained. In fact, Jefferson's passion for finding the woolly mammoth, in part, drove the famous expedition itself. Jefferson specifically instructed Lewis and Clark to look for evidence of beasts and even sent Clark on a special mission to Big Bone Lick in Kentucky to collect fossil specimens, which he did and sent back to the White House, which Jefferson then categorized and sent to museums and researchers. Within these bones, Jefferson even discovered the skeleton of what what he thought was some sort of undiscovered lion. This sort of achieved all of Jefferson's dreams, too, here, Dave. An American species of lion could be a mascot of American superiority over Europe, like a symbol of the fierce emerging nation. Now, in reality, you know, reality is often disappointing, and in this case it was. What Jefferson found really was a giant ground sloth that had been extinct for some time, but officially bears a nod to Jefferson in its scientific name, Megalonyx? Jeffersoni. Now by 1823, Jefferson did evolve in his views on extinction, writing to John Adams that he believed it could be a possibility, and he never did give up hope in one day discovering the existence of woolly mammoths in the Americas. And who knows, Dave? I mean, I feel like I've been hearing since Jurassic Park came out that we are on the cusp of reviving extinct species using DNA. So what do you think? Is our future destined to be one with revived woolly mammoths walking around? I sure hope not. I hope not. Uh,
0: that, I ho- that would be horrible. You wouldn't want to
1: see a woolly mammoth at the zoo?
0: I'd, I'd want to see one, but we don't know how aggressive they are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, it could be like, it's like a dinosaur thing. I mean, we learned this in Jurassic Park, the first one. Some things are meant to be gone.
1: So it seems like you're kind of like the Jeff Goldblum in this whole debate right now. Yeah.
0: I mean, if, hey, Jeff Goldblum's the most likable character in Jurassic Park, by the way, so that's a fine uh, comparison. But speaking of Lewis and Clark, so when you were a kid, I'm sure that you watched some movies when you were a kid that you thought were great that are not good now. You know what I mean? So, like, if there's something that you think is really good when you're young and then you rewatch it as an adult, it's not good. We all have movies like that. Where my wife's family, for some reason, okay, they love this movie called Almost Heroes. And so, when you were talking about Lewis and Clark, it made me think about Almost Heroes. Have you heard of this movie? I don't know what that is. Exactly. So, Almost Heroes stars um, Chris Farley and Matthew Perry from Friends, okay? So, here's the description of Almost Heroes. Two explorers are racing Lewis and Clark to the Pacific Ocean in 1804. Edwards, played by Matthew Perry. Now, this is the official movie description, so it shows you how bad this movie is. Edwards, played by Matthew Perry, is a glory-seeking fop, (laughs) F.O.P., who's out of his league. Hunt, played by Chris Farley, is a slovenly clumsy tracker with a soft spot for toilet humor. Along with a team of misfits and losers... (laughs) The duo wrecks havoc on the American frontier. Okay, that's the official description. It's a 5% on oh, Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. Okay, So my, my wife's family still defends this movie that it's good, even though it's obviously not. Here's the critics' consensus. A sorry swan song for the talented Chris Farley.
1: Almost Heroes is a directionless comedy that doesn't even come close to the trial. <laughs> <laughs> I think the lowest reviewed movie on Rotten Tomatoes is Halle Berry's Catwoman. I think it's like 4%. So... I mean, it's got to be right there.
0: knocking on the door. So Almost Heroes is almost (laughs) the worst movie ever made. All right, Jay, a few years ago, we went to New York City with a group of friends for a wedding for our great friends, John and Erica. Shout out, by the way, to John and Erica, who I know are frequent commute listeners. But Jay, any specific memories stick out to you uh, from our time in New York?
1: Uh, It was when I learned the lesson that everyone, I guess, at some point has to learn about using Airbnb, which is that you should really make sure that you look deeply into the photographs and the descriptions of an Airbnb (laughs) and that oftentimes price does sort of determine what you're going to get. And so we found, my wife and I, an Airbnb. and We were like, this is an awesome deal. All these other suckers are paying hundreds of dollars for a hotel room. This place is like You know, 50 bucks a night or whatever, like we're killing it. And it looks awesome. Like all these photos of it made it look like it was this kind of cool, like, you know, upscale New York place. We get there, it's literally like in this lady's basement. You can hear rummaging around outside at all hours of the night, like people just committing crimes all around us. (laughs) And it is just the. Most filthy place ever, but the shots were of the place. It's just the person staged the photos so well. Like I went back and looked. At the listing, I was like, there's no way this was that place. I was like, no, that was the place. They just took such good photographs that fooled us that we ended up... I mean, I laid awake all night because I was like, I'm going to get stabbed in here and die. Hey, man, you're just out there making memories. <laughs> some memories are good, some
0: memories are bad. Well, Jay, maybe this says more about me than I originally intended for it to when I was working on this segment. But one of my main memories, and I've been to New York City now a few times since, but one of my main memories is the lack of public restrooms. Like, I admit that I consume a lot of liquids, but if any of our listeners have been to or lived in New York City, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Unless you are saddled up somewhere in a cozy restaurant, you better have a strong bladder. So Jay, with that said, I've always wondered, why don't we have pay bathrooms in America? Like if you were to travel to Europe or Asia, for example, you'd find some government-funded toilet options. So while in America we can all pee for free, would life actually be better if we couldn't? To examine the history of public restrooms in America, let's travel back in time to the early 1900s. In those days, railroads were what we primarily used to travel from one place to another, and train stations were often the only places in town that had modern plumbing. Now, these bathrooms were typically locked up tighter than Fort Knox and reserved for ticketed passengers only. Now, it took a while, but this bathroom method was eventually replaced by coin-operated locks. And Jay, according to Bloomberg, by 1970, America had over 50,000 pay toilets. Ten years later, though, by 1980, there were basically none. So what happened? Well, believe it or not, four high school friends happened. Frustrated by pay bathrooms, brothers Ira and Michael Gessel, along with their friends Steve Froilkin and Natalie Precker, decided to form a committee. The Committee to End Pay Toilets in America, or SEPTIA for short. For a while, Jay, SEPTIA was nothing more than a fun, creative club for the four friends. A way to stay in touch when they left for college. But in June of 1970, things were getting a little more serious. Septia held its first ever public meeting at the Dayton Public Library in Dayton, Ohio. Attended by 29 individuals, mostly friends and family, the meeting kick-started some serious lobbying by Septia and a fight to make public restrooms free. By the time the meeting was over, Jay, Septia had an official newsletter, an official logo, and believe it or not, a fight song. <laughs> the fight song went like this. We'll work until we know that toilets in America are free wherever we go. We'll flush them out. We'll wipe them out. We pledge, oh, septia. <laughs> around this time, some legislators around the country were starting to think, hey, wait a second. It might be a basic human right to pee for free, right? Like, can we actually make people pay for this? And Jay, looking back at it now, the Septia founders all generally agree that it was the right time and the right place for Septia to start a revolution, a bathroom overhaul to help lead the charge on legislation. Septia made it a public issue, but legislators were already thinking about it. Work had been simmering behind the scenes for quite some time. Paying to use the bathroom had never been popular, believe it or not. And Jay, while the annual revenue for the American government for pay toilets was estimated to be around $30 million in 1970, the growing number of people in power that did not want to pay to pee, combined with a vocal group of young people in Septia, slowly but surely led cities all over America to ban pay toilets. Basically, Septia had given politicians the little boost that they needed, evidence that banning paid toilets would be a huge hit in America. Septia proved that it would be a huge hit, and they were right. While this revolutionary time in the history of bathroom use in America took place decades ago, let's circle back to my New York City take on bathrooms. Bathrooms in America are free now, sure, which is great, but that has led to there being a shortage in availability. According to a 2021 report by a company called QS Supplies that releases a report called the Public Toilet Index, that report found that the U.S. has only eight public toilets per 100,000 people, tying us, Jay, with Botswana as one of the worst places in the entire world for public bathroom access. Part of this is the why incentive, right? I mean, after the pay-to-pee era ended in the 1980s, America basically just converted existing restrooms that were pay restrooms to free ones. Very few new options were constructed. Public restrooms are hard to maintain, even as paid options. So free ones get about the attention that you'd expect. Believe it or not, though, some paid options have popped up through the years. New York City, in fact, installed some self-cleaning units in 2008, costing a quarter to use these paid restrooms. But only five of these 20 created self-cleaning restrooms Jay, were ever installed while the remaining 15 were actually created and they sit unused and uninstalled in a warehouse in Queens, New York. Reasons for this vary. They require more water to clean. They aren't very user-friendly. But when it really comes down to this, Americans just don't want to pay to pee, so they're not popular.
1: Yeah, there's been a couple times that I've taken uh, students abroad to Europe, and that's um, when you're in Europe, you know, you do something for so long that you don't have to pay for and then you go to a new place and you're like sort of entitled to that thing and you have this like sense of entitlement. And so you just walk around like angry all the time, like, oh my gosh, I can't use a bathroom here. I have to buy something here. This is ridiculous. I have to go inside this place and stick a euro in to be able to use the bathroom. It's in that moment that you realize like this is why people over here don't like us very much. <laughs> like we walk around entitled that we get to just use their bathrooms. Well, Dave, there are few board games like Monopoly. I mean, I know for me, like some of the maddest I've ever been playing a game has been over a game of Monopoly, but it has this unique staying power with people. So Dave, I ask you, when you're thinking about the lineup of pieces, they're all in front of you. It's your choice. Which one are you going with? I've always kind
0: of gravitated for some reason towards the thimble. Okay. Because it it stays up. Like, you don't have to worry about it falling over.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I'm sort of like Team Scotty Dog.
0: And, I mean, Monopoly's one of those games, like, if you bought it in 2001, you're still playing
1: that one. Right, Exactly. Well, Dave, Monopoly has a history of evolution, like really anything that's been around as long as it has. The game was first sold to Parker Brothers by a man named Charles Darrow, although it's still highly contested whether or not he stole the idea. And really, Dave, he probably did. The original game was invented by a progressive woman named Elizabeth Maggie, who invented the game from scratch as a tool to highlight societal inequalities. She actually called it the Landlord's Game, and her goal was to create an accessible way to teach people about the dangers of wealth accumulation and equality and capitalism and big industries forming monopolies in american society darrow evidently stole the board and copied the rules and then sold the game to parker brothers and actually received royalties throughout his life for the game now in this original draft of the game though the iconic pieces were left out entirely Players were expected to use random items from around their home as markers, such as like a button or a bottle cap or whatever else you could find laying around. According to the story, it was when Darrow's niece suggested that pieces be charms from a girl's bracelet that it clicked for Darrow and the iconic pieces were born. Original pieces were made from a zinc alloy and then briefly switched to wood during World War II when metal was in short supply and metal rationing was part of life. Since the 1930s, some pieces have remained while others have been retired and replaced. Originally, the game included six pieces, a top hat, a thimble, an iron, a boot, a battleship, and a cannon. Realizing that the game needed more pieces in 1935, the company added a race car, a purse, a rocking horse, a lantern, a Scotty dog, a wheelbarrow, and then a horse and a rider. Now, some of these pieces, they stuck around and continue to be pieces sold in the game of Monopoly. Others have been retired over the years, such as the Horse and Rider, the Lantern, and the Rocking Horse, which were all quietly retired sometime in the 1950s. As for how these tokens were chosen, well, that seems to be a little more muddled. We do know that the cannon and the battleship were both original pieces of a game called Conflict that never caught on. The others seem to be representative of different levels of social class, representing a divide between the upper and working class. Some symbols of wealth, such as the top hat, the sports car, or the purse, stood in contrast to symbols of labor, like the wheelbarrow, the thimble, the iron, or the boot. The game itself, Dave, is sort of a period piece in a way. It was developed and became popular during the height of the Great Depression, when many families had lost their jobs, their homes, and their savings, and Ironically, found pleasure playing a game in which the goal was to bankrupt their competitors. The game sort of captured a lot of the fears of the society during that era, and in that way it's sort of always been kind of political. In 2013, the iron was replaced by a cat, and then Monopoly shook things up in 2017 and held an online election in which three pieces were replaced by three new fan inductions to newly sold games. Game boards. Out of 64 potential options, which included a helicopter, a guitar, a diamond ring, and a robot, millions of voters decided to induct a Tyrannosaurus Rex, a rubber ducky, and a penguin to replace the boot, the wheelbarrow, and your favorite, the thimble. Now, this move was actually met with some controversy initially, with The Atlantic publishing an article titled How Monopoly's New Token Betrays Its History. The point of the outcry really boiled down to the viewpoint that those who opposed the inclusion of the new pieces felt as though the game was supposed to represent the economical divide in the country between the haves and the have nots. And while a thimble and a boot represented labor, a T-Rex and a penguin and a rubber ducky didn't quite do that. But overall, Dave, the game has evolved into countless other versions for major movie franchises with different sets of rules to downright bizarre takes on the game. So I don't think we're anywhere close to seeing the end of the evolution for the game Monopoly. We're not, because in April of
0: this year, okay, so just a couple of months ago, Monopoly actually had a vote. Where game players could vote to have an old token brought back. Okay, so an old token would be brought back and a new token would be retired. And would you believe the thimble is back, baby? Thimble Nation. Thimble is in. Up. The T-Rex is out. Okay, so <laughs> I just all wanted to give you games. the satisfaction of being able to tell everybody that. Thank you. Starting in the fall of this year. You can buy Monopoly, and you're going to have the thimble. The thimble's back in. What a great example of grassroots campaigns. Oh, can't wait. I might just buy a game. I'm not going to play it because I hate Monopoly, but just to support the thimble. (laughs) And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, podcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason. and I'm Dave Trump. We'll see you next week.